It is good to be with you all this morning. Um, It is the last Sunday of the year, and it just so happens to be the last day of the year as well. And as the calendar flips over from 2023 to 2024, you know, I think a lot of us may experience some degree of both nostalgia and also anticipation considering what happened in the past 365 days, but also simultaneously looking ahead to what happened in the next, well, what will happen in the next 365 days. Now, it's not bad to think this way, and something that I will do as well, but if I just expand this beyond just ourselves and look at our whole church, we can treat the end of the year as an opportunity to thank God for how he has grown and matured our church over the past year. Now, it's no secret that our church is a fairly young church, and with the young church comes a lot of excitement, but also its share of immaturity as well. But God has been faithful to grow us through his word and through the different challenges that he's brought our church through. But church family, I want to encourage us this morning that we're not done yet. None of us have arrived And while it's good to take time to appreciate the work that the Lord has done already, at the same time, we have to remember that the race is not finished. And we have to consider how we as a church can continue to race towards the goal. And that's why I thought it would be appropriate this morning to turn to a passage that exhorts us to look ahead, to consider what is before us and what the Lord calls us to do so that we can strive for that together in the coming year. Our passage for this morning comes in Philippians 3, but before we get there, it's been a while since we've been in the book of Philippians, so let's first start off by being reminded of the background and understand where our passage exists in its context. So the book of Philippians, it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. He wrote the letter during one of his imprisonments, most likely his Roman imprisonment, but not his final imprisonment. Now, Paul, he had a very close relationship with the Philippian church because he himself had helped to found and establish that church. But after he did so, he would then continue on from there with his missionary journeys. And at some point later, the Philippian church got wind that Paul had been in prison for the gospel. So they sent one of its members, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, to bring a monetary gift to Paul, as well as to stay with him to minister to his needs. After receiving Epaphroditus, Paul thought it would be best to send him back to the Philippian church. And he sends him back with this letter, the one that we know as the epistle to the Philippians. And in this letter, Paul writes to encourage the church, a church that he considers his partners in the gospel. And as we arrive at Philippians 3, Paul is warning the church against false teachers who put confidence in the flesh particularly in human traditions like circumcision. He describes how he, though he has every worldly reason to put confidence in his own flesh and his own pedigree, he's left all of that behind for something even more valuable, and that's simply to know Jesus Christ. See, everything that Paul had obtained before, all of his hereditary privilege, being a pure-blooded Jewish man, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, named Saul after the first king of Israel, who was also from the tribe of Benjamin. All of his education, having been trained and taught by the prominent rabbi Gamaliel and recognized as a Pharisee, 
All of his legalistic perfection considered blameless under Jewish law and all of his religious zeal to the point where he even persecuted and killed Christians. And he considered all of these things, things that in his society would have placed him in the upper echelon, the elite of the elite, he considered them less than worthless. Things that would only detract from what was most valuable to him now, which is knowing Christ. Paul was a man who had no problem tossing aside worldly and temporal things if they meant that he could pursue Christ better. Now, I appreciate what Pastor Andrew shared with us a few weeks ago from Hebrews 12 about laying aside every sin, every encumbrance, everything that might hinder us from a single-minded pursuit of Christ and what he calls us to do. And our passage for today very much shares the same heart with Hebrews 12. It's a heart of pressing on and pressing forward in light of what we've already been given in Christ. So if you can, turn your Bibles to Philippians 3. We'll be focusing on Philippians 3, 12 through 16, but let's read starting back in verse 7 to capture some of the, the momentum of this passage. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, as we break down this passage, I'd like to take us not to 2024, but back to the year 1982. Now, in 1982, there was a little race held on a big island in Hawaii called the Ironman Triathlon. And if you're familiar, this is an endurance race consisting of a two and a half mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike ride and a full 26.2-mile marathon to cap that off, back to back to back. Today, the annual Ironman Triathlon is held on the big island of Hawaii, and it's a commercial and media spectacle that, only, that a lot of people know of. But prior to 1982, it was little more than an oddity something that only a niche group of people knew about and only a small group of fanatics and devotees followed. So what changed? What happened and what was so special about 1982? Well, that year, a 23-year-old college student from California named Julie Moss, an amateur who only signed up for the race as part of her research for her exercise physiology thesis, 
suddenly found herself in the lead with only two miles left in the entire race. Now, at this point, having had no special training for this extreme of an endurance race, Julie was severely dehydrated. But having come so far, she resolved to push ahead and win the race. And as she stumbled forward, she eventually slowed to a walk, and with just 15 feet to go in a race that had spanned over 140 miles and had taken over 11 hours up to that point, her knees buckled and she staggered, collapsing to the ground. Now a race of, uh, a crowd of race volunteers swarmed her to attend to her. The professional athlete who had been in second place for most of the race passed her unknowingly and she finished the race in first place. But what happened next has become etched as a seminal moment in triathlon lore. Julie Moss, having lost first place and unable to get back on her feet, clearly still delirious and needing medical attention, she got on her hands and her knees, and not even being able to lift her head up to look forward, she crawled along the ground for the remaining few feet to pass the finish line. Now, viewers around the world watched this, mesmerized and in disbelief as NBC's Wide World of Sports broadcast what has become known as the Crawl of Fame, the 15 feet that changed the sport from a niche curiosity to a multi-million dollar industry and brand. To this 23-year-old college student, it didn't matter how far she had gone up to that point. It didn't matter that she had accomplished what she had accomplished or achieved in that race up to that point or how she had already wildly exceeded any expectations that were placed on her. It didn't matter how embarrassing it was or how painful it was to crawl on the ground in front of live TV cameras. Her goal was simply to keep moving forward until she finished the race. So church family, regardless of where you happen to be in your Christian walk, whether you are just at the beginning or if you're 15 feet away from the finish line, you're not done yet. Saved and justified, yes, but complete and finished, no. And it's my goal and my intention to encourage all of us this morning, myself included, that Christ's desire for us is not to remain as we are, but to continue to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what I would like to offer us today. Just three encouragements as we press on towards the goal. Three encouragements as we press on towards the goal. The first is to remember that we are in progress works of Christ. We are in progress works of Christ. We see this in verses 12 in the first part of verse 13. It says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. If you're a believer this morning, you've been given so much in Christ. You've received forgiveness for your sins. You've received faith and re regeneration and repentance and justification and adoption into the family of God. You are a new creation, given a new heart with new desires and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You've received so much that you might be tempted to think that you're done, that the race is over, that there's nothing else necessary 
and that you can just sit back and enjoy the rest of your life, and then we die and go to heaven. Yes, we have received so much in Christ. It's true, and yet it is equally true that we are incomplete. Paul himself says that he has not already obtained this and that he is not perfect. So what's Paul talking about there? What is this that he has not obtained? Well, whenever you see words like this or that or it, these ambiguous pronouns and words that refer to other things, your best bet is to look at the section directly preceding. And if we look back at verses 10 and 11 in Philippians 3, it says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, are these things, things that Paul has not obtained already? That I may know Christ? Doesn't Paul already know Christ? The power of his resurrection? Doesn't Paul already know the power of the resurrection? Share in his sufferings? Paul, he's currently in prison for the sake of the gospel, so does he, he know of the suffering that Christ suffered? Becoming like him in his death? Resurrection from the dead? Okay, maybe he hasn't gotten there yet for those parts. But what are we to make of these things? Now, Gordon Fee in his commentary on Philippians says, What he has not yet obtained, therefore, is the eschatological realization of the goal expressed in verses 10 to 11. The kind of knowing of Christ that will only be his when he has attained unto the resurrection from the dead. You see, when Paul talks about wanting to attain the resurrection from the dead, he doesn't just mean that he wants immortality. He's not, you know, some Spanish conquistador looking for the fountain of youth so he can live forever. That's not what's going on here. When scriptures talk about a resurrection, it is not just talking about being alive for a very, very long time. But it comes in the context of the consummation of our relationship with Jesus Christ. When the scriptures talk about our resurrection, it's specifically connected to the culmination of our Christian journey, where we're raised to be with Christ, freed from the corrupting effect of sin on our mortal bodies, where we can then fully enjoy unhindered fellowship with our Savior, unhindered by our sin and our flesh. Put in other words, it's when we're completed, when we're no longer in progress, but finished works in Christ. And yes, Paul does know Christ. Paul already has eternal life. Yes, Paul has fellowship with Christ and union with Christ. But what Paul desires that he has not obtained yet is to know and share in Christ fully. When he has been perfected and completed, freed from even the presence of sin in his fallen flesh. He wants to be resurrected so that he can be with Christ and in his presence finally made perfect finally completed in him. Because when we are resurrected, our body of sin, it's done away with. And we are raised free from the corruption of sin. When we're raised, we can finally know Christ as we are meant to know Christ. And Paul confirms this when he goes on to say that he has not yet been made perfect. The idea of perfect here is really the idea of being completed or finished, like a finished product. Although Paul has certainly grown in Christ-likeness since his conversion, he is by no means as Christ-like as he can be, and he won't be until he is raised. 
as Christ was raised. And keep in mind, this is the capital A Apostle Paul. He's expressing that he is not done yet. The Apostle Paul, the one who received a direct vision of Christ and heard an audible voice speaking to him, the one who gained the trust of all the other apostles and became an apostle himself, the one from whose pen flowed most of the New Testament. That Apostle Paul did not consider himself done yet. At the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, it was likely around 30 years after his conversion on the Damascus Road. We might assume that by the time he wrote this book, he had already achieved and he had already attained everything that there was to achieve and attain, and that he had arrived and that he was done, that he was a finished product. But no, he says he is a work in progress, that he has not obtained it. And we know he's not talking about obtaining conversion because he was already converted. This idea of not having obtained completion is the description of someone who has already been saved, regenerated, justified, but still has a ways to go. You see, what Paul longs for and what he desires and strives for isn't just a way to avoid hell. He's already got that. What he's looking for and striving for is more and more and more to be more like his Savior. He wants to be mature in Christ. Paul's not satisfied to just receive hell insurance or a pardon from the penalty of his sin. He wants to grow and mature in Christ and to get closer to completion. Now, I don't know if anyone here would consider ourselves perfect, but how many of us are satisfied with our spiritual maturity to the point where there's no longing or desire to know more of Christ and to become more like him? The desire of Paul and of every believer ought to be to see Christ fully formed in us, where we're so utterly changed and transformed that we reflect the character and the desires of our Savior. Our desire should be to be mature in Christ. You see, you can have a relationship with Christ, and you can be justified through faith, and you can still be a baby with a lot of growing to do. About a month ago, our second daughter, Mia, turned one year old. She is 100% alive, and she is 100% our child. She doesn't need to grow to be more alive, and she doesn't need to grow to be more our daughter than she already is. In that sense, she is already completely who she will be. But in a different sense, no one would consider her mature or complete. Anyone would recognize that a one-year-old has a lot of growing to do. She can't walk yet, she can't talk yet, and she has a grand total of four teeth. She's here, she's well, there's nothing wrong with her, but she's not done. She's immature, she is in progress. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, we are in progress. If you placed your faith in Christ, you are in Christ. You are a new creation. You are 100% justified and regenerate. The old is gone. The new has come. Period. Full stop. Carriage return. Paragraph break. But make no mistake, you are not done. You're not fully mature. You're in progress, and you need to continue to grow. You're not yet who you ought to be. Right now, you are not yet who you ought to be. 1 John 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We are already God's children, but we are not yet like him in the way that he intends for us. So why do we need to continue to grow? Why can't we just be satisfied with what we are? I thought we're supposed to be content, right? Well, we are supposed to be content with what we have materially, and we're not to be covetous, but there should be a holy dissatisfaction inherent in all of us because we exist in the tensions of being new creations and yet still living in the flesh and in the world. A tension between the new self that, the new self that we're declared to be and the old self that still clings to us. Why can't we just be content with where we are? Well, Paul says that he presses on to be more like Christ, and the reason he does that is because Christ Jesus has made him his own. And the way the ESV phrases it here, I know most of us use ESV, it obscures a little bit the idea that Paul is expressing. If I switch over the NIV briefly, it says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It implies that Christ saved Paul for a purpose, and that purpose is the same thing that Paul is striving for now. Christ saved Paul for a purpose, and that same thing is what Paul is striving for now. Paul belongs to Christ. His life is not his own to do with whatever he pleases, but it belongs to Christ to do whatever pleases Christ. Let's not lose the comparison there. Paul strives to know Christ because that is precisely what Christ saved him for. Christ saved us so that we would know him. Therefore, we press on to know him more. And that perfectly encapsulates the life of the believer. We are Christ. We belong to him. We are one with Christ and we're united with Christ. And now we press on because of who we have been made to be in Christ. We press on because of our new identity. We press on because of our relationship with him. Our striving towards Christ-likeness is a response to the relationship that Christ has already initiated with us. If you're in a relationship with someone, you should want to love and serve them, shouldn't you? For those of you who are engaged to be married, Matt and Josephine, I'll pick on you because you're right there. When you get married, you get to love and serve one another, right? But what does it say about you if you say, well, we're already engaged. I don't really need to do anything for you right now, right? No, the reason you're engaged is because you love one another and you want to pursue that. You, you don't use engagement as a reason to not pursue one another, right? I think you can all recognize just how nonsensical that line of thinking is. But yet, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, how many professing Christians think this way? Well, I'm already saved. I already have a relationship with Christ, so I don't need to press on or strive to grow in holiness, grow in my knowledge of his word, obey his commands. I have enough Jesus in my life, thank you. I have enough of his word. I have enough fellowship with him. I have enough holiness. No, we are to press on because we have a relationship with Christ. He made us his own, and he made us his own for a reason. We were made his so that we could be like him. We were made his so that we could be like him. Romans eight twenty nine. you all know this verse. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We're meant to be like Christ. That's what we're supposed to be pressing on for, to be conformed to Christ. And that brings us to our second point for today. We are to press on towards the prize. We are to press on towards the prize. And we see this in verse 13b, the second half of verse 13 and verse 14. It says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So in our passage, Paul uses the word translated as press on twice. This is a word that describes a pursuit of something or a chase of something. And it's actually a word that's more often used in the Bible to describe persecution or hunting. Hunting someone down, much like Paul persecuted or hunted down Christians before he was saved, now he is persecuting or hunting down Christ-likeness. Paul is not sitting idly by, just going about his life, oh, if I grow in Christ-likeness, great, but if not, oh well. This is not a passive pursuit. He desires it so much that he is actively going after it, and he is doing so with full fervor. He is going all out. So how do we do so? How does it look like to press on? Well, Paul gives us some detail in these verses. In verse 13, he says, forgetting what lies behind and then straining forward to what lies ahead. So we'll we'll go through each of those. Firstly, there's that aspect of forgetting what lies behind. For Paul to press on, he had to actively leave everything that he had previously regarded as gain. The things that he had placed his confidence in, he had to let them go because while they served the goals and the desires of his old self, They hindered the goals and desires of his new self. And this isn't true for only Paul, but for every follower of Christ. When we become a follower of Christ, we are a new creation. We no longer hold dear the things that serve the goals and desires of our old selves. But we let go of them to the degree that they hinder the goals and desires of our new master, Jesus For each of us, there are things in our past that keep us from growing in Christ as much as we could. And we can be so distracted by things of the past that it hinders us from moving forward. For some, those things are the sins and the idolatries of our old self, the things that we regret and the things that we struggle with, the sins that entangle us, to borrow the terminology from Hebrews 12. And we can get so focused on our sin that we look backwards in the past, and we look inward at ourselves rather than looking towards Christ and the forward direction that he calls us to. For others, it's past successes and past confidences, things that we trust in and we rest in rather than our daily dependence and pursuit of Christ. Things that might not be bad in and of themselves, but things that can overshadow and impede our progress. Our tendency is to go back to the things we know, is it not? The things that we're comfortable with and the things that we are confident in, where we have experienced success. My productivity, my ability to figure out and problem solve, my ability to work harder or my connections or even my Christian worldview and upbringing. Whether 
the things are sins or fleshly confidences, if they are distracting from our growth in Christ, if they are encumbering us, then we should leave them behind. Paul tells us to leave it all behind because that is not where we are heading anymore. Now, when I got married to Joanna, I left behind my single life. No more midnight runs to Taco Bell. I moved out of the Yukon house. How sad would it be if I kept my room at Yukon and kept going back there after marrying Joanna? Again, there's nothing inherently wrong with Taco Bell. It's tasty. There's nothing inherently wrong with Yukon House. There's some nice guys who live there. But I left it behind. Leave it behind, brother. That's not your life anymore. When we're called to leave behind, it could also be past growth. Okay? It could also be past growth. Sometimes our hearts are so prone to wander that we can put our confidence on what we've done even after we're saved. Have you heard the phrase, yesterday's home runs don't win today's ball games? Well, the same idea applies here too. No matter what you've accomplished in ministry last year or how much you've learned and how much you've grown in Christ up to this point, you have not yet been perfected and you are still called to pursue Christ today. I don't need to study this part of the Bible. I already studied that. I don't need to rely on the Spirit. I can just do this on my own. I grew that one time in Bible study last year, so I don't need to do the homework this time around. I shared the gospel last year, so I don't need to do that this year. I attended this conference before, so I don't need to go again. I don't need this training. I've already learned that. We can't even put our confidences in the past growth, or how obedient we were yesterday. Christ calls us to obedience today. Parents, you'll know this well. Many times you'll ask your kids to do something, and they'll respond that they obeyed last time. I'll ask Evie to wash her hands, and she'll respond that she did it last time. Good. Now do it this time. Many of us are relying and resting on yesterday's obedience, yesterday's faithfulness, yesterday's growth, and assuming that we're still walking well with Christ because of it. Don't look to the past. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for, uh, fit for the kingdom of God. Look forward. Not only look forward, the text calls us to what? Strain forward to what lies ahead. Not only are we to leave behind our old life, we are to do so so that we can move positively in the other direction. In fact, when we're saved, we're so changed from who we used to be that we move away from our old selves even through adversity and even through difficulty. Rather than our old selves, our old lives, our old idols having that gravitational pull on us to bring us back to where we were before we were saved, the believer experiences something different. There is a force or a compulsion in the other direction, a force so strong that even if it is the harder path and the harder way, we will still proceed in that direction. That is the testimony of the believer. The way of Christ is more difficult. It is the opposite of inertia or my natural tendencies. But the new life in me compels me to follow the path of the cross, the path of dying to self so that Christ might live in me and through me. Galatians 5, 17 states, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So even though your flesh pulls at you, a believer strains forward against the flesh by the power of the spirit, whom we have been given through Christ. I like the word here, straining, because it implies difficulty. The word just sounds hard, doesn't it? Strain even sounds like pain. Now, that's English. That's not inspired by any means. It implies you have to go beyond where you are right now. The picture of this is the idea of like stretching for something or reaching for something, something that's outside of your comfort zone. Straining means that it's not going to be easy. Verse 13 does not say coasting forward to what lies ahead. Now, be honest, how many of you wish this said coasting instead of straining? I do. That's me. I would much rather coast than strain. I'd rather things come with no difficulty and easily rather than through pushing and straining and reaching and stretching and struggling. If you gave me a choice between the easy way and the hard way, I'd choose the easy way every single time. But that is not the way of the cross. That is not the path our Savior took. Did Jesus coast to the cross? Did he cruise out of the grave? Coasting is not the path of Christ, and it's not the path of sharing in Christ's suffering. It's not the path of becoming like him in his death, and it's not the path of someone who knows the power of Christ and looks to obtain the prize. So the question is, in your walk with Christ, are you coasting or are you straining forward? Because if you're coasting, it's likely the flesh is exerting more control in your life than Christ is. If you're coasting, it's likely that the flesh is exerting more control in your life than Christ is. In your Christian walk, how many of you are coasting along with some past momentum, pointing at past growth or what you learned a few years ago or an experience that you had a while back, a spiritual high or maybe some dramatic conversion story instead of what Christ calls you to do right now? Yes, we can thank God and appreciate all the ways that he has grown us and brought us along to this point, and we should. We need to do that, just like it's appropriate for us if we look at all the work that God has done in our lives and our church this past year. But are we satisfied with that? Because we're not done yet, and God calls us to move forward. If we're satisfied with how much we know of Christ, how much we're like him now, how much we're pursuing his will now, what does that reveal about our heart? What does that reveal about who he is to us and the extent of our love for him? There's another passage in which the Apostle Paul uses very similar language to this. That's is actually the only time in scriptures, other than this, where the word prize is used. It's also used by the Apostle Paul. And it's in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. So if you can, let's go ahead and turn there so that we can look at that together. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. It says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Does that sound like someone who's coasting to you? In a race, you don't see runners just casually jogging around a track or strolling around the track because they know if they want the prize, they need to run. If you ever watch a race, at the very end of the race, the ones who are about to pass the finish line, what are they doing? Do they start slowing down as they reach the finish line? No. Now, I'm, I'm going to cross the finish line anyways, and I don't want to pull a muscle, so I'll just kind of ease into it. No, they actually kind of do this lurching forward thing where they throw their bodies ahead just to give that last burst and beat out their competitors. That's the idea of straining. That is how we are to mat pursue maturity in Christ. And Paul exhorts us not to cruise to the finish line, to rest on momentum or past growth, but it's to run as if there is a prize at the end because there is. There is a prize at the end. So what is the prize? What is the goal? What is the upward call that Paul talks about here? Now, Paul, he doesn't finally differentiate between these, but they're all simply referring to what runners run for and what they run towards what they run for and what they run towards. We've already identified them, what Paul is striving for. The goal and the prize, the upward call, his finish line, his reward, they're all pointing to one thing. The call is to be like Christ. The prize is to be perfected and completed in Christ. The goal is to reach the end of our lives, having pursued Christ and becoming like him, that we might be raised to be with him. All of these things come together in one package on the day when Christ returns. When Christ returns, we will be raised. When Christ returns, we will be perfected. When Christ returns, we will be like him. And when Christ returns, we will be with him. 1 John 3, 2, again, it, just to remind us, reiterate, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And when is it that Christ will appear? When will we see him as he is? If you guys can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 17. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. It's talking about the rapture. That is our goal and our prize and our literally an upward call. When we will finally, finally be perfected and complete in Christ and with Christ. Brothers and sisters, even though we are all different people with different personalities and different circumstances, different gifts, we do not have different goals and different prizes. We all have the same goal and we all have the same prize. 
For Paul, he had his eyes firmly set on the ultimate prize of being mature in Christ. So much so that earlier in the book of Philippians, he tells of his struggle of desiring to depart and be with Christ, but yet recognizing that there's still a race that has not yet been finished yet. There was still work left for him to do. Paul desired to be with Christ more than anything, but he didn't sit and coast until Christ took him home. What did he do? Because of his love for Christ, he pressed on and he strained toward the goal, desiring to receive the prize of being with Christ and like Christ. The church family, that is a prize that is worth running for, worth straining for, worth pressing on for. And this is the perspective of those who are mature in Christ. And that's our last point for today. We are to keep a mature perspective. We are to keep a mature perspective. And we see that in verses 15 and 16. It says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Thus far, Paul's focus has been on his own striving and his own perspective on growing in maturity. But in verse 15, Paul shows us that this is not just his own personal perspective that he's talking about. It's not just a testimony of his desire to grow in Christ, but it is one that we are all called to. It's not just Paul who ought to think like this, but a way of thinking for those who are mature. Now, when Paul says, let those of us who are mature, he doesn't mean perfection as in those of us who are without sin or anything like that, because Paul has already stated that he has not been made perfect. So this is referring to something else. It refers to those who have grown and matured in Christ enough to know that they are not there yet. And who have a desire to know Christ so much that they strain forward for the prize of knowing Christ more and more and more. It's the perspective that we've been talking about all morning. Ironically, the understanding that you are not complete, that you have not yet been perfected in Christ, and the the desire to grow in Christ is the precise attitude of those who are mature in Christ. To be mature is to have the attitude and perspective of continually striving for the goal of Christ-likeness as in-progress works of Christ. And conversely, it is immature to believe that you don't need to grow anymore, or that you can coast, or that you can rest on any prior achievements or past growth. It's immature to be satisfied with your current spiritual maturity. If you are a mature Christian, you'll think like Paul has expressed here in this passage. And if you don't think this way, if you are truly in Christ, you'll learn, Paul says. You'll learn. Because if you're truly in Christ, God will reveal this way of thinking to you. In other words, every Christian, as they mature in Christ and mature in their thinking, will end up thinking this way. This is not only for some of us, but for all genuine believers. You either think this way or you will think this way. And sometimes that comes from the chastening or the discipline that comes from the Lord. Sometimes that is the only way that we will learn. 
But if you are a child of God, you will get it one way or another. So this isn't just for the super elite Christians, the select few, those who are higher tier saints, but for each of us. It also means that for as long as we're here in this life, we will not be perfected completely. We will grow in maturity and we press on for it, but it won't be complete until that day. In the end, mature or immature, what does Paul tell us to do? He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Only hold true to what we have attained. That is our responsibility. How do we get the prize? We hold true to what we already have. So what is it that we already have? What have we attained? What have we been given? And we come full circle here. We haven't already been made perfect, but we have already been given new life in Christ. We have already been given his righteousness. We have received justification by faith. And we are called to live according to that new life that we have. We should live not as our old self, but our new self. Persevering and pressing on, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, this all comes as we hold true to what the gospel has already accomplished in us. We are new creations, we've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In the life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loves us and gave himself for us. The reality that was accomplished when we were saved is that our old self has died, and that our new self is in Christ. And we grow and mature by holding true to this new identity and not our old identity. And this means, yes, you must leave behind your old identity, your old self, and everything that served the goals and the desires of the old self. For Paul, he gave us a list of what that was for him in verses four through six. But what is on your list? What's on your list? In what ways are you holding true to the flesh and to your old self? Your education? your investments, your relationships, your career experience, your Christian upbringing and pedigree. They're rubbish. Literally, they're dung. Things to be thrown away and not things that should compete with your love for your Savior. I've never wrestled with whether or not I should keep one of my children soiled diapers. It's never been a consideration for me. And in comparison to Christ, these things shouldn't even cross our minds anymore as something to be valued. If they don't contribute to your maturity in Christ, they actually detract from it. And Paul counts those things as a loss. Why are they a loss? Well, they're a loss because they're not the prize. They pale in comparison. And if these things don't help you attain the prize, it's a loss. They are encumbrances hindrances to our ultimate goal. So church family, as we turn the calendar to 2024, I want to offer us one last encouragement. We are not done. We are not like Christ as we would want to be, but we have a promise. We have a promise that Paul himself gave to these Philippian believers, and it's in Philippians 1 verse 6. 
And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our confidence is not in our ability. How hard can I strive? How hard can I press on? How much can I suffer? That's not where our confidence is, although we do need to do those things. That's not where our hope is. Our hope for 2024 and also our hope until the day Christ returns is that God will complete the work that he began in us. If the work is begun, it will be completed. So as we labor and as we strive for Christ-likeness, we can do so with the end in mind that one day we will be perfected and we will be raised to be with the one for whom we strive. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for these words. And we thank you for this promise, first of all, that we're given Christ. We're given relationship with you. We're given a brand new orientation, brand new desires, Lord. And yet, Lord, we come to this passage and we recognize that we have a long way to go. And we're not done yet. And for each person here, Lord, I pray that we would consider the ways that you're calling us to forget what lies behind or the things that we're finding our hope and our confidence in and consider how is it that you want us to strain and press on and strive forward to Christ-likeness, Lord. We all need to do that. And Father, I just pray that as we do that, we would keep in mind the wonderful news of the gospel that we have been made new and that you, not us, are the one who will bring that work to completion. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.